Hello, my friends. This is your Definitely Storytime host, Jamie. And if you're here, it's Definitely Storytime. So let's settle in and get comfortable, or whatever it is you prefer doing while you listen. And let's begin. We are reading Edgar Allan Poe's Part 2 The Purloined Letter When he had gone, my friend entered into some explanations. The Parisian police, he said, are exceedingly able in their way. They are persevering, ingenious, cunning, and thoroughly versed in the knowledge which their duties seem chiefly to demand. Thus, when G detailed to us his mode of searching the premises at the Hotel D, I felt entire confidence in his having made a satisfactory investigation, so far as his labors extended. So far as his labors extended, said I. Yes, said Dupin. The measures adopted were not only the best of their kind, but carried out to absolute perfection. Had the letter been deposited within the range of their search, these fellows would, beyond a question, have found it. I merely laughed, but he seemed quite serious in all that he said. The measures, then, he continued, were good in their kind and well executed. Their defect lay in their being inapplicable to the case and to the man. A certain set of highly ingenious resources are, with the prefect, a sort of procrustean bed to which he forcibly adapts his designs. But he perpetually errs by being too deep or too shallow for the matter in hand, and many a schoolboy is a better reasoner than he. I knew one about eight years of age whose success at guessing in the game of even and odd attracted universal admiration. This game is simple and is played with marbles. One player holds in his hand a number of these toys and demands of another whether that number is even or odd. If the guess is right, the guesser wins one. If wrong, he loses one. The boy to whom I allude won all the marbles of the school. Of course, he had some principle of guessing, and this lay in mere observation and admeasurement of the astuteness of his opponents. For example, an errant simpleton is his opponent, and, holding up his closed hands, asks, are they even or odd? Our schoolboy replies, odd, and loses, but upon the second trial he wins, for he then says to himself, the simpleton had them even upon the first trial, and his amount of cunning is just sufficient to make him have them odd upon the second. I will therefore guess odd. He guesses odd and wins. Now with a simpleton, a degree above the first, he would have reasoned thus. This fellow finds that in the first instance I guessed odd, and in the second he will propose to himself upon the first impulse, a simple variation from even too odd, as did the first simpleton, but then a second thought will suggest that this is too simple a variation, and finally he will decide upon putting it even, as before. I will therefore guess even. He guesses even and wins, 
Now this mode of reasoning in the schoolboy, whom his fellows termed lucky, what, in its last analysis, is it? It is merely, I said, an identification of the reasoner's intellect with that of his opponent. It is, said Dupin, and, upon inquiring of the boy by what means he effected the thorough identification in which his success consisted, I received answer as follows. When I wish to find out how wise or how stupid or how good or how wicked is anyone, or what are his thoughts at the moment, I fashion the expression of my face as accurately as possible in accordance with the expression of his own, and then wait to see what thoughts or sentiments arise in my mind or heart, as if to match or correspond with the expression. This response of the schoolboy lies at the bottom of all the spurious profundity which has been attributed to Rochefoucauld, to La Bougive, to Machiavelli, and Campanella. And the identification, I said, of the reasoner's intellect with that of his opponent depends, if I understand you right, upon the accuracy with which the opponent's intellect is admeasured. For its practical value, it depends upon this, replied Dupin, and the prefect and his cohort fall so frequently, first by default of this identification, and secondly, by ill-admeasurement, or rather through non-admeasurement, of the intellect with which they are engaged. They consider only their own ideas of ingenuity, and, in searching for anything hidden, advert only to the modes in which they would have hidden it. They are right in this much, that their own ingenuity is a faithful representative of that of the mass. But when the cunning of the individual felon is diverse in character from their own, the felon foils them, of course. This always happens when it is above their own and very usually, when it is below. They have no variation of principle in their investigations. At best, when urged by some unusual emergency, by some extraordinary reward, they extend or exaggerate their old modes of practice, without touching their principles. What, for example, in this case of D, has been done to vary the principle of action? What is all this boring, and probing, and sounding, and scrutinizing with a microscope, and dividing the surface of the building into registered square inches? What is it all but an exaggeration of the application of the one principle or set of principles of search, which are based upon the one set of notions regarding human ingenuity, to which the prefect, in the long routine of his duty, has been accustomed do you not see he has taken it for granted that all men proceed to conceal a letter, not exactly in a gimlet hole bored in a chair leg, but at least in some out-of-the-way hole or corner suggested by the same tenor of thought which would urge a man to secret a letter in a gimlet hole bored in a chair leg? And do you not see also that such recherches, Nooks for concealment are adapted only for the ordinary occasions and would be adopted only by ordinary intellects, for in all cases of concealment, a disposal of the article concealed, a disposal of it in its recherche manner, is, in the very first instance, presumable and presumed. And thus its discovery depends not at all upon the acumen, but altogether upon the mere care patience and determination of the seekers, 
and where the case is of importance, or what amounts to the same thing in the political eyes, when the reward is of magnitude. The qualities in question have never been known to fail. You will now understand what I meant in suggesting that, had the purloined letter been hidden anywhere within the limits of the prefect's examination, in other words, had the principle of its concealment been comprehended within the principles of the prefect, its discovery would have been a matter altogether beyond question. This functionary, however, has been thoroughly mystified, and the remote source of his defeat lies in the supposition that the minister is a fool because he has acquired renown as a poet. All fools are poets. This the prefect feels, and he is merely guilty of a non-distributio medii in thence inferring that all poets are fools. But is this really a poet? I asked. There are two brothers, I know, and both have attained reputation in letters. The minister, I believe, has written learnedly on the differential calculus. He is a mathematician and no poet. You are mistaken. I know him well. He is both. As poet and mathematician, he would reason well. As mere mathematician, he could not have reasoned at all, and thus would have been at the mercy of the prefect. You surprise me, I said, by these opinions which have been contradicted by the voice of the world. You do not mean to set at naught the well-digested idea for centuries. The mathematical reason has long been regarded as the reason par excellence. Il y a Perrier, replied Dupin, quoting from Chamfer, que tout était publique, tout convention recue, est une sottise, car elle a convenu à plus grand nombre. The mathematicians, I grant you, have done their best to promulgate the proper error to which you allude, and which is none the less an error for its promulgation as truth. With an art worthy a better cause, for example, they have insinuated the term analysis into application to algebra. The French are the originators of this particular deception. But if a term is of any importance, if words derive any value from applicability, then analysis conveys algebra about as much as, in Latin, ambitus implies ambition, religio, religion, or homine honesti, a set of honorable men. You have a quarrel on hand, I see, said I, with some of the algebraists of Paris, but proceed. I dispute the availability and thus the value of that reason which is cultivated in any especial form other than the abstractly logical. I dispute, in particular, the reason adduced by mathematical study. The mathematics are in the science of form and quantity, Mathematical reasoning is merely logic applied to observation upon form and quantity. The great error lies in supposing that even the truths of what is called pure algebra are abstract or general truths. And this error is so egregious that I am confounded at the universality with which it has been received. Mathematical axioms are not axioms of general truth. What is true of relation? 
of form and quantity is often grossly false in regard to morals. For example, in this latter science, it is very usually untrue that the aggregated parts are equal to the whole. In chemistry, also, the axiom fails. and the consideration of motive, it fails. For two motives, each of a given value, have not necessarily a value when united, equal to the sum of their values apart. There are numerous other mathematical truths which are only truths within the limits of relation. But the mathematician argues from his finite truths through habit, as if they were of an absolutely general applicability, as the world indeed imagines them to be. Bryant, in his very learned mythology, mentions an analogous source of error when he says that although the pagan fables are not believed, yet we forget ourselves continually and make inferences from them as existing realities. With the algebraists, however, who are pagans themselves, the pagan fables are believed, and the inferences are made not so much through lapse of memory as through an unaccountable addling of the brains. In short, I never yet encountered the mere mathematician who could be trusted out of equal roots, or one who did not clandestinely hold it as a point of his faith that x squared plus px was absolutely and unconditionally equal to q. Say to one of these gentlemen, by way of experiment, if you please, that you believe occasions may occur where x squared plus px is not altogether equal to q, and, having made him understand what you mean, get out of his reach as speedily as convenient, for beyond doubt he will endeavor to knock you down. I mean to say, continued Dupin, while I merely laughed at his last observations, that if the minister had been no more than a mathematician, the prefect would have been under no necessity of giving me this check. I knew him, however, as both mathematician and poet, and my measures were adapted to his capacity with reference to the circumstances by which he was surrounded. I knew him as a courier, too, and as a bold intrigant. Such a man, I considered, could not fail to be aware of the ordinary political modes of action. He could not have failed to anticipate, and events have proved that he did not fail to anticipate, the waylayings to which he was subjected. He must have foreseen, I reflected, the secret investigations of his premises, his frequent absences from home at night, which were hailed by the prefect as certain aids to his success, I regarded only as ruses to afford opportunity for a thorough search to the police, and thus the sooner to impress them with a the conviction to which G, in fact, did finally arrive, the conviction that the letter was not upon the premises." I felt also that the whole train of thought which I was at some pains in detailing to you just now, concerning the invariable principle of political action in searches for articles concealed, I felt that this whole train of thought would necessarily pass through the mind of the minister. It would imperatively lead him to despise all the ordinary nooks of concealment. He could not, I reflected, be so weak as not to see that the most intricate and remote recesses of his hotel would be as open as his commonest closets to the eyes, to the probes, to the gimlets, and to the microscopes of the prefect. 
I saw, in fine, that he would be driven, as a matter of course, to simplicity, if not deliberately induced to it as a matter of choice. You will remember, perhaps, how desperately the prefect laughed when I suggested upon our first interview that it was just possible this mystery troubled him so much on account of its being so very self-evident. Yes, said I, I remember his merriment well. I really thought he would have fallen into convulsions. The material world, continued Dupin, abounds with very strict analogies to the immaterial, and thus some color of truth has been given to the rhetoric dogma that metaphor or simile may be made to strengthen an argument as well as to establish a description. The principle of the vis inertia, for example, seems to be identical in physics and metaphysics. It is not more true in the former that a large body is with more difficulty set in motion than a smaller one, and that its subsequent momentum is commensurate with this difficulty, then it is in the latter that intellects of the vaster capacity, while more forcible, more constant, and more eventful in their movements than those of inferior grade, are yet the less readily moved and more embarrassed and full of hesitation in the first few steps of their progress. Again, have you ever noticed which of the street signs over the shop doors are the most attractive of attention? I have never given the matter a thought, I said. There is a game of puzzles, he resumed, which is played upon a map. One party playing requires another to find a given word. The name of town, river, state, or empire, any word, in short, upon the motley and perplexed surface of the chart. A novice in the game generally seeks to embarrass his opponents by giving them the most minutely lettered names, but the adept selects such words as stretch in large characters from one end of the chart to the other. These, like the over-largely lettered signs and placards of the street, escape observation by dint of being excessively obvious. And here the physical oversight is precisely analogous with the normal inapprehension by which the intellect suffers to pass unnoticed those considerations which are too obtrusively and too palpably self-evident. But this is a point, it appears, somewhat above or beneath the understanding of the prefect. He never once thought it probable or possible that the minister had deposited the letter immediately beneath the nose of the whole world by way of best preventing any portion of that world from perceiving it. But the more I reflected upon the daring, dashing, and discriminating ingenuity of D, upon the fact that the document must always have been at hand, if he intended to use it to good purpose, and upon the decisive evidence obtained by the prefect that it was not hidden within the limits of that dignitary's ordinary search, the more satisfied I became that, to conceal this letter, the minister had resorted to the comprehensive and sagacious expedient of not attempting to conceal it at all. Full of these ideas, I prepared myself with a pair of green spectacles, and called one fine morning quite by accident at the ministerial hotel. I found D. at home, yawning, lounging, and dawdling, as usual, and pretending to be in the last extremity of ennui. He is, perhaps, the most really energetic human being now alive, but that is only when nobody sees him. 
To be even with him, I complained of my weak eyes and lamented the necessity of the spectacles, under cover of which I cautiously and thoroughly surveyed the whole apartment, while seemingly intent only upon the conversation of my host. I paid special attention to a large writing-table near which he sat, and upon which lay, confusedly, some miscellaneous letters and other papers, with one or two musical instruments and a few books. Here, however, after long and very deliberate scrutiny, I saw nothing to excite particular suspicion. At length, my eyes, in the circuit of the room, fell upon a trumpery filigree card-rack of pasteboard that hung dangling by a dirty blue ribbon from a little brass knob just beneath the middle of the mantelpiece. In this rack, which had three or four compartments, were five or six visiting cards and a solitary letter. The last was much soiled and crumpled. It was torn nearly in two across the middle, as if a design, in the first instance, to tear it entirely up as worthless had been altered or stayed in the second. It had a large black seal bearing the D cipher very conspicuously and was addressed in a diminutive female hand to D, the minister himself. It was thrust carelessly and even, as it seemed, contemptuously into one of the uppermost divisions of the rack. No sooner had I glanced at this letter than I concluded it to be that of which I was in search. To be sure, it was, to all appearance, radically different from the one of which the prefect had read us so minute a description. Here the seal was large and black, with the D cipher. There it was small and red, with the ductal arms of the S family. Here the address to the minister was diminutive and feminine. There the superscription to a certain royal personage was markedly bold and decided. The size alone formed a point of correspondence. But then the radicalness of these differences, which was excessive, the dirt, the soiled and torn condition of the paper, so inconsistent with the true methodical habits of D, and so suggestive of a design to delude the beholder into an idea of the worthlessness of the document, these things together with the hyper-obtrusive situation of this document, full in view of every visitor, and thus exactly in accordance with the conclusions to which I had previously arrived, these things, I say, were strongly corroborative of suspicion in one who came with the intent to suspect. I protracted my visit as long as possible, and while I maintained a most animated discussion with the minister, upon a topic which I knew well had never failed to interest and excite him, I kept my attention really riveted upon the letter. In this examination, I committed to memory its external appearance and arrangement in the rack, and also fell at length upon a discovery which set at rest whatever trivial doubt I might have entertained. In scrutinizing the edges of the paper, I observed them to be more chafed than seemed necessary. They presented the broken appearance which is manifested when a stiff paper, having been once folded and pressed with a folder, is refolded in reversed direction in the same creases or edges which had formed the original fold. This discovery was sufficient. It was clear to me that the letter had been turned as a glove inside out, redirected and resealed. I bade the minister good morning and took my departure at once, leaving a gold snuff-box upon the table.
The next morning I called for the snuffbox, when we resumed quite eagerly the conversation of the preceding day. While thus engaged, however, a loud report, as if of a pistol, was heard immediately beneath the windows of the hotel and was succeeded by a series of fearful screams and the shoutings of a terrified mob. D. rushed to the casement, threw it open, and looked out. In the meantime, I stepped to the card rack, took the letter, put it in my pocket, and replaced it by a facsimile, so far as regards externals, which I had carefully prepared at my lodgings, imitating the D. cipher very readily by means of a seal formed of bread. The disturbance in the street had been occasioned by the frantic behavior of a man with a musket. He had fired it among a crowd of women and children. It proved, however, to have been without ball, and the fellow was suffered to go his way as a lunatic or a drunkard. When he had gone, D. came from the window, whither I had followed him immediately upon securing the object in view. Soon afterward I bade him farewell. The pretended lunatic was a man in my own pay. "'But what purpose had you?' I asked, in replacing the letter by a facsimile. Would it not have been better, at the first visit, to have seized it openly, and departed? "'D,' replied Dupin, "'is a desperate man, and a man of nerve. His hotel, too, is not without attendance devoted to his interests.' Had I made the wild attempt you suggest, I might never have left the ministerial presence alive. The good people of Paris might have heard of me no more. But I had an object apart from these considerations. You know my political prepossessions. In this matter I act as a partisan of the lady concerned. For eighteen months the minister has had her in his power. She has now him in hers since being aware that the letter is not in his possession, he will proceed with his exactions as if it was. Thus he will inevitably commit himself at once to his political destruction. His downfall, too, will not be more precipitate than awkward. It is all very well to talk about the fascilis descensus Averni, but in all kinds of climbing, as Catalani said of singing, it is far more easy to get up than to come down. In the present instance, I have no sympathy, at least no pity, for him who descends. He is that monstrum horrendrum, an unprincipled man of genius. I confess, however, that I should like very well to know the precise character of his thoughts when, being defied by her whom the prefect terms a certain personage, he is reduced to opening the letter which I left for him in the card rack. How? Did you put anything particular in it? Why, it did not seem altogether right to leave the interior blank. That would have been insulting. D. at Vienna once, did me an evil turn, which I told him, quite good-humouredly, that I should remember. So, as I knew he would feel some curiosity in regard to the identity of the person who had outwitted him, I thought it a pity not to give him a clue. He is well acquainted with my message, and I just copied into the middle of the blank sheet the words... Un descent si funeste, s'il n'est digne d'atri, et digne de tiesti. They are to be found in Crebillon's atri. Okay, it is your host, Jamie. 
of definitely story time with my post-purloined letter reaction. Overall, I enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it more than The Mystery of Marie Roget, I think because, I mean, while it wasn't terribly high stakes, uh, the explanation of like how everything was done was much better. We knew who the perpetrator was. You know, we got all our answers and I enjoyed it. Um, he goes on quite a bit about how much he friggin' hates mathematicians, which is really weird. Um, so that kind of threw me reading it like, wow, uh, really? Okay. Okay. But like physics and metaphysics are fine. I realize those are not all the same things, but it's just like one set of logic is unacceptable, but other logic is totally, I don't know. It's, it just seemed weirdly picky to me. I thought it was amusing. And I also liked that he gave props to the prefect where he deserved it. You know, he doesn't just totally poop on people. He doesn't poop on all the parades. He will acknowledge when someone is good at something. And I appreciate that. So I liked this one. I mean, he does go on a bit, but I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was more satisfying to me than the mystery of Marie Roget. And, uh, yeah, but that that concludes the trilogy. I don't think there are any more stories with Dupine, so um, that's it. That's it for him. Uh, we are going to move on to Descent into the Maelstrom and a few other stories, but I don't think we're going to read too many more. We'll move on to season five fairly soon and be done with Edgar Allan Poe. I hope you stick around. And that has been our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did... I hope you'll consider telling your friends and family, and if you have the means, providing listener support. I also have a Patreon, and I have merchandise available on Teespring. Links are on the homepage. I thank you for choosing Definitely Storytime.